Today, we discuss Miro. Listen, when it comes to running client workshops, the dream, of course, is to get those creative juices flowing, right? But typically what ends up happening is thousands of hours get wasted because of poorly facilitated meetings. So I have Maya with me today. She's a consultant who runs Fortune 100 workshops from leadership training to team building, and she has the insider tip on what makes things work. Maya? Thank you, Jason. I've been doing this a long time. My number one tip is to bring everyone into that visual collaboration platform. So personally, I use Miro and it's completely changed how I interact with the room. You have to give people a way to feel like they're in the room even when they're not. That's something you can do easily in Miro. Otherwise, they've seen the same slides and format a thousand times. Falling asleep, eyes glazing over, yawns, all that. Exactly. When people follow me on the Miro board, everyone is literally going on a journey with me. We're adding thoughts, we're reacting, and we're voting for the best ideas. It's great. Connective magic. I like it. That's M. M-I-R-O.com. Friends, hello. Happy Friday. Yes, I have a special podcast conversation for you. I just wrapped up my dialogue with Trip Fuller and Travis McMacken, who is a reformed theologian. I know, I know, don't panic, do not turn off this broadcast. It's not exactly what you think in so many ways. I actually had this conversation because Travis is a socialist, universalist, reformed person. He's also a theologian. He teaches uh, religion at an academic level. So I said, dude, you got to come on. Let's have the conversation. So we did. We actually broadcast this conversation live on YouTube yesterday on Thursday. And I said, you know what? Let me throw it on the podcast because this was designed to be a podcast conversation. And plus, I wanted you all to hear an example of what it will be like at Beer camp, our theology beer camp in October, because Travis will be there alongside me and Tripp and a bunch of other people. I got to say, friends, I'm just giving you my off the cuff answer or thoughts on this conversation that I just had 10 minutes ago. Um, I was a little skeptical, and I say this in, in uh, during the live towards the end. I was skeptical. I'm like, okay, I John MacArthur, like predestination, wrath of God, total depravity. I'm kind of I'm over that stuff. And Travis, of course, being the expert theologian that he is, really helped me understand that again, like most things, the tradition that I'm talking about or that I was raised in is bigger and way more nuanced and actually way more helpful than maybe I ever thought possible. So we cover a lot of the big ones. We do talk about the wrath of God. We talk about uh, total depravity. We talk about a lot of things. And of course, Trip is on the call with us, um, hanging out and giving us his his brilliance as well. So I really hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Before I get to it, I want to mention something kind of big. For this month of September, we are doing our Many Hands Make Light Work giving campaign, and you can be entered to win some pretty cool giveaways. Like We're giving two pounds of Mad Priest coffee away. We're giving all of our merch away. We're all also doing another giveaway where you can co-host a podcast episode with me or you can win our first ever TNE mystery box curated by yours truly. That's me in the microphone, the person talking to you. I'm going to make that box and send it out to one uh, predestined or lucky, depending depending on how you look at it, winner. All you have to do is sign up for a monthly donation of $5 or more a month or a one-time donation of $30 or more, and you'll be entered to win any one of those amazing giveaways. This is going for the whole month of September, so you're going to hear me talk about it a lot. The reason why we do this, and I know I say it often, but hear me. 
We do this because the only way I'm able to do all the content and all the work that we do is because of the generosity of people. There's, it's also why we have no Patreon account. There's no paywall anywhere, no subscription. Do you wanna get access to our private Facebook community? There is no cost for that. Instead, we are totally dependent on the generosity of others. So every couple months, really every year, we're trying to make this a, a yearly thing. We do this month-long, many hands make light work campaign, hoping to let you know that, hey, all it takes is a few hundred people people given five bucks a month that's nothing to make this work possible so that being said the giveaways are amazing. It's going the whole month of September. You can click on the link in our show notes right now. Sign up for any donation, a monthly donation of $5 or more, or a one-time donation of $30 or more. You are entered to win some amazing prizes. All donations made in the U.S. are tax deductible. All right, friends. I hope you enjoy this interview and discussion with Travis and Trip. I would love your feedback on this conversation. I really would. And also, if you want to watch it, like I said, it is on our YouTube channel. Channel. We are really doing a lot more content on YouTube, so make sure you subscribe. I'll put a link in the show notes. Just scroll down and you're good to roll. All right, friends, talk to you all next week. See ya. Hello, friends. Hello, also Twitter people and Facebook. This is the first time I'm live streaming to three different platforms simultaneously. We are on YouTube. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter or now X, whatever the hell we're going to call it. Welcome, friends. This is the first time thing for me. Usually when, when we do a, a live, we're responding to a video, I bring in someone I know or someone who's way smarter than me and we kind of go through it piece by piece and three hours later we have this live stream. This will be different. I'm bringing a podcast style conversation to the lives because... The person that I'm going to introduce to you has blown has blown all my categories away. Okay, it doesn't make sense that this person behaves and thinks the way that he does. So I said, okay, let's get him on the podcast. Let's talk about reform theology because my take of reform theology now is like I'm kind of over it. And then I met Travis, and he's like, no, dude, you don't get it. There's some good stuff here. I'm like, I don't know. Let's do a live stream and find out together. So I also have another surprise guest, okay? I, I didn't want to say anything, and I mean that because he showed up today last minute, but I'm glad to have him on anyway. <laughs> so let's get the three of us on this call. Hopefully this works. Boom! We have Trip Fuller oh, to yeah. my left, and we have Travis <laughs> McMacken on my right. Hello, gentlemen. Good to see you. How are you? Doing good. Stoked to be here. Excited to talk reform theology. <laughs> Travis, oh, let's it's my start favorite with you. Topic. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Because I don't know a whole lot about you besides trip connecting us. So I'm going to give you the microphone for a few minutes here. Go ahead. Go ahead and introduce, introduce yourself. Well, it's dangerous to, to give me the microphone for any period of time. But um, I am a professor of religion at Lindenwood University in St. Charles, Missouri, which is just west of St. Louis. I'm also an associate dean, which means I spend way more time anymore looking at spreadsheets compared to, you know, Schleiermacher or Calvin or some reformed theologian. Um, my background is um, kind of Baptist, evangelical, free, non-denominational Christianity. And this um, conversation is going to be a bit of a throwback for me to the kinds of conversations we would have in the lobby of our dorm room late at night at Wheaton College a few decades ago. So I'm looking forward to uh, reliving some of those memories and having a good time. Sweet. Uh, no, it's great to have you, of course. I'm looking forward to getting into that. And of course, friends, most of you already know Trip Fuller. So hello, Trip. It's good to see you as always. It's good to see you, Tim. I am a recovering Calvinist. Mm. And um, if I have to hang out with someone from the Reformed tradition, I like Travis McMacken. Well, oh, I know that. 
I know that because yeah. you have him coming to beer camp, theology beer camp, which is kind of oh, yeah. part of what we're doing. This is kind of like a teaser for this big event that that trip you've thrown together. I'm kind of helping you out with in some level. I have a I have a graphic here, friends. So we are doing this event in Springfield, Missouri, October 18th. What through the 20th trip is it two days, something like that. And Thursday to Saturday. Thank you. This thing is loaded. Let me just show you who is going to be there. Get ready. One, two, three. Boom. Look at that. Okay. There are tons of scholars, friends and folks that you probably already have heard of. Some you might not have heard of. Look at all the podcasts. We got Dan Coke over here. I see Kevin Garcia. Trip, you're going to be there, of course. We have Mason Menega coming on. Uh, all kinds of folks. And for the first time really ever, we're expanding the musical guests. We got Trey Pearson, Derek Webb, Dan Hasseltein, who is from Jars of Clay, Flamey, Grant, and now Ivy King added to the lineup. So this is going to be a really fun thing, event. Now, I went last year's trip, full disclosure. It was my first time. You know you know me. I am kind of dipping my pinky toe out of the waters of like harmful evangelical theology and into some new territory. So I said, well, let me try and go to this thing and see what the hell it's all about. I got to say, I had such a fun time, not only meeting you and other people, but it, it was great just being around folks really 24-7 for two days, who were asking the kinds of questions that I was asking, but more importantly, had some really wise things to say about them. So this is a great event for people who are kind of walking out of what I call the basement of evangelical fundamentalism and are like, whoa, this house of Christian thought is so massive. What do I do with it? And we go, hey, here's an event you can come out to that might help you be introduced to some new ways of thinking about the Christian tradition where you're not left with this, you know, a or B scenario of either you're all in or you're all out of the Christian faith. Also, I'm not a big beer drinker trip. I know that you are. I know. <laughs> we all know. But your ticket does get you unlimited amounts of beer for those of you who like those things. Is that correct, Trip? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But also there's wine <laughs> and kombucha, and we got a sponsor for the non-alcoholic beverages. Also, it includes uh, breakfast on Friday and Saturday and lunch in the giant bottle share on Saturday. Uh there's, I mean, it's, it's got a lot going for it. And uh, this will be Travis's second beer camp. Yeah. And the, the first time he came to beer camp, he told everyone how all the good reformed theologians are socialist universalists. So um, <laughs> well, who knows what's going to happen this time? I know one of his talks, he's going to be talking possible. about Star Wars. Oh, yeah. because okay. yeah, because he's force sensitive. He's part of the elect. Very. Oh, okay. <laughs> like awesome. Well, friends, listen. If you want to come out to the event, you can get your tickets theologybeer.camp. If you type in the promo code, what's the what's the code you just made? Trip. I am elect. All capitals. <laughs> like I am elect. You'll get. I'd really just wanted to see if we could talk someone into coming from this, and it's a form of self affirmation. Like part of the anxiety of a lot of American reform tradition is like, am I a member elect? How do I demonstrate the fruits of my election? Do I need right. an ecstatic experience? Do I have to feel like a filthy sinner and confess my sins? Sit on an anxious bench before the sovereign Lord calls me in the front? No. You just type in I am elect, no spaces, all caps, theologybeer.com, and boom, shakalaka, 50 bucks off your ticket. And you may be saying, whoa, what a great opportunity. No, 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 dear friends. God, before the foundations of time, elected yes. you to day drink with Travis. So there you go. Amen. Perfect. Amen. All right. There we go. So let's hop into this conversation. Let me kind of set the stage here, Travis. You know, here's kind of, I grew up in a, 
I mean, forgive the language, maybe it's a little, a little too generic for you, but I grew up in what I would call a Calvinist tradition. Uh, John MacArthur was kind of the, the person that a lot of the folks I grew up under were were reading and showing me and, and teaching me. And so I understood very early that that to be a Christian meant that God has predestined me before the foundations of the world uh, to become saved. And that also meant that God um, is the nice way of putting it is passing over uh, others uh, who are just left to their own reprobate uh, reprobation and therefore are going to be under the wrath of God forever, a.k.a. eternal conscious torment. And I understand the tulip theology that I was given, you know, how the T stands for total depravity and all it goes all down the line. And so that's kind of how I grew up. And that's kind of what I accepted from a very early age. And over time, as I kind of got I would say maybe I expanded into the basement of evangelicalism. So maybe now I'm still down there, but now I'm discovering folks like maybe Francis Chan or um, maybe someone like, um, I don't know, Shane Claiborne at the time, right? Who's reading these books and writing these books. I'm like, oh, here's some different ways. And maybe early Rob Bell when he's writing Love Wins. So I, I always had like other views, but I always came back to, well, the Bible is clear, right? Romans 9, etc. And eventually I got to a point where I went through a major like personal mental health crisis, just kind of flipped like it flipped like a switch i can't even explain it to you why it happened but it did and i was kind of forced to reckon with what do i think about this god that i've been given this idea that god is is predestining he, there, there's no there's not one rogue molecule as rc sproul would say that he is predetermining everything that comes to pass and then my brother tells me one night as we're driving i'm not a christian so i guess i wasn't elect and i was like wow is, is that how that works like I, i'm gonna be in heaven giving all glory to god my brother will be burning in hell forever, also giving glory to God. And I was supposed to just to accept that. So that's kind of a, a quick snapshot of how I was taught to understand not just Calvinism, but just the Christian tradition, broadly speaking, under that banner of Reformed theology. Of course, there's other things that come along with the inerrancy, et cetera, and a real maybe like fundamentalism of this is what the Bible clearly says. We have to understand doctrine, et cetera. That's what I was introduced to. I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious for you growing up, I'm assuming in the church, was that also kind of your initial form? Foray into Reformed theology. What was your experience like? So, so let me just say, um, oh my God, that was a lot. <laughs> I don't know where to start. But at the same time, um, a lot of things resonate with my own experience. So, um, I grew up an evangelical among evangelicals. I was um, a Timothy Award scholar at Awana clubs. I was a award-winning youth preaching competition person and got a scholarship to a Baptist Bible college that way, um, end up going to Wheaton College, which is known as the Harvard of Evangelical Institutions, where I studied Bible and theology. So um, I, I was churched, <laughs> as you might say, uh, within evangelicalism. And I was really fortunate, um, partly because I have the right skin tone, partly because I have the right anatomy, and partly because I've been reading Calvin since I was 16, um, and could hold my own, I escaped that experience without any kind of um, specific trauma, I want to say. Um, the way that it has traumatized me has been much deeper and implicit, and I've been spending um, years kind of on the down low trying to work that out and reframe my thinking and things like that. But um, it, for me, I was able to avoid any kind of um, crisis of faith moment. It was maybe a long series of very small crises as I sort of studied my way out of um, that kind of evangelical background and into an 
actual Reformed Church. And I want to highlight that um, because so often in North America, what passes as Reformed theology is not actually being done in a community of faith that is part of the Reformed tradition. Like there is actually a living Reformed tradition, a, a worldwide um, collection of communities of faith who self-consciously are guided by Reformed confessional traditions, Reformed liturgies and practices. And if we want to look for, uh, and this is kind of the conviction I came to, if we want to look for what Reformed theology actually is, not just in the museum sense. I mean, you can go and study Tulip, you can go and study whatever version of Reformed theology existed in the past. That's kind of the theological museum. You can do it. But if you want to see what actual Reformed theology is right now, you need to go to the churches <laughs> where there are Reformed Christians and see what that theology looks like, see what is being done there. And so um, if I grew up as an evangelical of evangelicals at this point, I'm a Reformed Christian, a member of the Presbyterian Church USA. I'm a teaching elder in that church, which means I've taken vows to be guided in my reading of Scripture by our Reformed confessional documents. So they are um, constant conversation partners for me. Um, and so that this idea that Reformed theology is simply an intellectual conceptual construct that is kind of a once-for-all thing that exists out there, and it's a set of propositions, and you either assent to it or you don't, and you have these people who are disconnected from any actually existing Reformed community telling you what you have to believe as a Reformed theologian, um, that just makes absolutely no sense to me um, at this point in my life. I, I grew up interacting, knowing about MacArthur, um, there was actually a controversy when I was a teenager between John MacArthur and another famous pastor named Erwin Lutzer, who at the time was the pastor of Moody Bible in Chicago, and they were arguing kind of over the perseverance of the saints point. And um, I was always Team Lutzer. He was he was my guy. I never much cared for MacArthur, but um, but yeah, I kind of came out of those arguments and have not looked back because I found an actual living Reformed theology to engage with. Okay, that is really helpful. Let's let. Why don't you go ahead and kind of outline maybe a little bit of like what that actually means for you? Like, what is this living Reformed yep. theology? Because I'm just kind of curious to hear. It, maybe either how similar or how different it is from what I've experienced and what I think many people watching this experience some version of at some point in their life. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. So um, there are lots of ways you can approach this. The, the thing that makes sense for me yeah. is that um, reform theology at its core is about a certain way of understanding um, the relationship between us as Christian communities and believers, and God. And um, Calvin articulates this really well at the very beginning of the Institutes. It's literally the very first sentences of the Institutes, where he's talking about the interrelationship between the knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And he goes on to say, you can't figure out which one comes first. They're always intertwined. You cannot separate them. Um, and so this, this self-involving knowledge, there is no such thing as pure propositional knowledge 
of the Christian God. If you think you have it, you are not talking about the living God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're talking about a conceptual idol that you have constructed. Um, any, any true knowledge of God is intimately wrapped up with this experiential, existential relationship. Um, so it's, all, it's never just a question of what is right belief about God. It's always a question of what does God mean for us in our lives, and then how do we live that out? And that is, the, in, for my money, that is the true orientation of Reformed theology. Right? What's this relationship with God that we say we have with God, this encounter that we have with God mean for then how our life is shaped and how it issues forth day after day? Hmm. Jake Knapp is the inventor of the design sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, it's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most, brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list. Okay. Trip, you got anything you want to add so far to this conversation? Oh, no, I, it was in your Facebook group where people asked, tagged me. I was like, what's the reform tradition? Yeah. And I, I, I wrote like 2000 words in a note on my phone and then realized <laughs> I was going to get made fun of for putting it on there. But I would just say like every part of the Christian church, like each tradition has these habits and rhythms within it. And Travis, I think, is raising one of the most beautiful parts of the reform tradition is that it's very aware that we are finite human beings. We have a beginning and an end to our life and everything we use to refer to ultimate to God or even to make sense of God's acts in history uh, that we, we can we hear testified to in scripture or in the history of the church. All those things are mediated by real people and we have limits. Our language is a human construction and we try to do our best. And one of the gifts the reformed tradition has given the church is just to go know what's above your pay grade. And when you make direct, finite statements about God, and it's just it, it it's not that accurate, right? Like it can be yeah. more or less accurate, but it's not final. And so, what you're doing with your theological language uh, is is it always lapses into doxology at some point, and you yep. don't know when. Hmm. Yep, and that's like that's praise. a huge Man. part of reformed spirituality. I would say there's you know there's all the solas that people talk about with connection to the Reformation, but in the reformed tradition, they really latch on to the idea of soli deo gloria. It's all for God's glory alone, yeah. right? Which goes back at least to Johann Sebastian Bach before the reformed tradition. But every Sunday, I show up at church and I hear scripture read and I pray with my fellow believers and I hear scripture preached and I respond by, among other things, putting my talents and treasure at the service of God. And what do we do as soon as we have finished doing that is we sing the doxology. 
every single time. It's one of the last things that we do in our liturgy, right? So it's mm. this doxological focus where we are lifting ourselves and offering ourselves to God in this way to, um, to recognize that we don't have the last word on any of this. And you mm. see this embodied, if we go back to that kind of museum of the Reformed tradition, we see this yeah. embodied in some really concrete ways because there is no single Reformed confession. Some people try to tell you that if you're Reformed, you have to accept the Westminster Confession. If you're That's Reformed, all you have time. to accept the Canons of Dort. It's bullshit, to be completely honest. There are many Reformed confessions. There always have been, and they've been promulgated in a number of different languages because what Reformed confessions are are um, a particular group of a particular community of believers coming together to say what they believe at any given time and to say right now this is the best we can do and so we don't have a single confession like the lutherans who have the augsburg confession right mm. we have a whole book of confessions in my church but a whole history of confessions no matter where you are in the reformed tradition where different particular churches, different communities of believers in this reformed family have said, you know, okay, for us right now, this is the best we can do articulating this thing. And what we do in Scotland in 19, in 1560, whatever it was, is not binding on the people in France two decades later. It's not binding on the people in America a century, right? I mean, these things are always historically situated and time bound. And this is because both of the fathers of the Reformed tradition, both John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, Calvin worked primarily in Geneva, Zwingli worked mm -hmm. primarily in Basel, no, in Zurich. Mm -hmm. uh, Basel was another dude. I think his name was Ecolampadius, which is a fun name to say. Um, but the two main fathers of the tradition were both educated in humanistic traditions. They were part of that humanistic learning that was becoming uh, much more popular in the late 1400s, early 1500s. And the thing that humanism does that had not been done in a thought through way before is track change over time. Mm. So the humanists are the first ones who woke up and said, you know what, we love classical architecture, but we're not making it anymore. What happened in between? Or we love classical literature. We're not making it anymore. What happened in between? Mm -hmm. And then that humanistic learning came into the Reformation. And those folks start asked, started asking, well, as far as we can tell, purgatory wasn't anything some people talked about until this date. What happened? Or, you know, how did the actual texts of the canon come together, they started asking historical questions. It's this awareness of socio-historical location and context that fuels the Reformed tradition in promulgating all these many different confessions. And no, they don't all agree with each other on every mm. point. They, mm. There's a family resemblance, but there's plenty of internal disagreement because they're all reading scripture and talking to one another and trying to figure out what they need to say right now. Then, I'll give you a, a real clear example of this. Calvin caught a lot of heat early on with the first confession that they put together in Geneva because they left the doctrine of the Trinity out of that confession. And so when they caught heat, the answer was, well, we didn't put it in there because nobody's disagreeing about the Trinity. We're all on the same page about the Trinity. Why did we have to put that in there? That's not what we're doing. So it's that 
that contextuality, that historical awareness of what's going on in any particular community of faith at any given time, that's the Reformed tradition. Well, I have good news because Evan says that he loves you. So that's a good start. <laughs> People in my community tend to like you so far. At least one of them does. So Thanks, congrats Evan. to I you, Travis, that. for that one. Um, okay, so I, I want to repeat in a very succinct way, I think what I heard you say, and you tell me if I'm wrong here. What I heard you say is that maybe you were taught that the Reformed tradition is a set of like foundational objective truths about like all things God and doctrinal statements. In mm -hmm. reality, the Reformed tradition is a conversation. And it's a little more elastic than that. And people are in conversation and based on the context, culture, and historical moment, that shapes how they interpret the tradition that, 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 that they're currently a part of, which is why 100%. the Reformed tradition doesn't always agree. Is that kind of the idea of what you're saying? Yep, that's it. Perfect. Okay. So with that in mind, why don't we go through a few of the things that maybe for me and maybe the audience are kind of on the tip of our tongue of like, okay, well, how do you think about this or think about that? And maybe you kind yeah. of give your view on that and maybe what tradition you're pulling from in the reformed world. And we'll go from there. I, I think one of the easiest ones is this concept of, of total depravity, right? The idea that, Hey, you are really just a filthy rotten sinner. You were born totally depraved. You could do nothing good apart from God waking you up, essentially playing duck, duck goose on your head. Uh, and, and then <laughs> making you alive in Christ, right? How does your part of the Reformed tradition handle the doctrine, I guess we can call it, of total depravity? What are your thoughts on that? Great question. Um, so my particular corner of the tradition um, is theology done in the 20th century, and um, theology done under the conditions of modernity has real questions about what a nature could possibly be, so that if we talk about human nature, are we actually really talking about anything? So um, that gets in, but that gets into like a whole huge cul-de-sac. The thing I would emphasize about um, the Reformed tradition and the idea of quote-unquote total depravity is that um, marketing and propaganda can easily run away with you. Hmm. If you actually look at what um, the better representatives of this tradition uh, mean when they say this, it's not a judgment that everything that exists in human or creaturely life is 100% terrible. And a lot of the times that's what the rhetoric sounds like, right? It's totally yes. depraved. Every last percentage of it is horrific, right? Literally going but, to hell in a handbasket. That is the perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I just talked about how both Calvin and Zwingli were humanists. Right. Calvin's that's kind of weird. First, <laughs> Calvin's first book is on Cicero. Right. And he, he works with Seneca and a number of these other um, pre-Christian, <laughs> pre-Christian um, classical thinkers. And they they find value in studying these things. And in fact, one of the distinctives of the Reformed tradition, the Reformed family of Christianity, is that um, we we found colleges. There's just a ton of them. I happen to work at one. Lindenwood University is not, you know, full-fledged affiliated with the Presbyterian Church anymore, but that's where we were founded as a Presbyterian college. Um, education is a huge part of the Reformed tradition, and the liberal arts are an important part of that. Ka Zwingli wrote an essay um, for his stepson, is, that's who he dedicated to, but it's called Of the Upbringing and Education of Youth in Good Manners and Christian Discipline, and it's all about studying the liberal arts, right? <laughs> now, the reason why is because they believe that you need a certain skill set to become um, able 
to do the job of ministry or to do the job of government, which is the two things that folks in this tradition were trying to educate people to do. Good citizens and magistrates, good Christians and pastors. And to do that, you need a certain set of skills. And now I'm channeling Liam Neeson. Um, And that certain (laughs) set of skills (laughs) is you need to be able to read and you need to be able to communicate. And who are masters of this craft? Who you study with and apprentice with during your education? It's the classics. So it's impossible (laughs) to believe that these guys thought everything produced by human beings is 100% crap. Hmm. It just does not make any sense. When this, what this doctrine means is there isn't any aspect of human life that is 100% good. Hmm. So it's the exact flip. And why? Because the point they're trying to make is that at the end of the day, you can't save yourself. Hmm. At the end of the day, God has to do something for you. Jesus, grace, faith, sola, 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 all of that. God needs to do something for you. And we, we can have all kinds of conversations about how um, collaboration and divine and human agency go together. And that's one of the things that I've studied at some length. And I'm sure Tripp would love to get into all the, the gory details and we can compare metaphysics, but uh, which sounds dirtier than it actually is. But I think we need to put it, we need to put it on a shirt trip. Let's compare metaphysics or something. Um, it's ultimately about at no matter how good you are, no matter how perfect your literary styling, no matter how much you cultivate the traditional classical virtues of what it means to be a good person, um, no matter what you do, there's always at least that last percentage point that you cannot supply yourself because you have been contaminated by sin, because every part of our life is infected with this sickness of sin, and it requires God's work through Christ to heal us of that. Hmm. That's what total depravity is all about, and it's terrible marketing. <laughs> terrible marketing, except it sure as hell did stick in people's minds, <laughs> right? It, it, it's it stuck in mind, yeah, 100%. In terms of communicating the point of the doctrine, right? It goes way off the deep end. Hmm. I mean, this is helpful because, and listen, there are probably people maybe watching this who are saying, I don't think I, I have to be saved from anything. And listen, that's totally fine. We're talking about in the context, right, of like the reformed and Christian tradition, which yep. I think it's pretty standard that there is some level of, we want to at least partner with God or trust that God can do something alongside of us, something like that. And the total depravity doctrine that I was taught versus what you just said literally seemed night and day. I mean, they, you know, on one hand, what I hear you saying is like, listen, uh, people are flawed. We're not perfect. And total depravity says that we're not perfect no matter how hard we try. And I'm like, yep, yep, I get that. Like, I can give you plenty of examples of how much I've missed the mark in my own life, like time and time again. That's very different than the belief of, hey, even your good actions in the eyes of God are still a bunch of shit. Like, it's, you know, right. God doesn't give a shit about you doing that thing for that person unless you are one of the people who have been elected to be saved by his grace from his wrath. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. One of my teachers, George Hunsinger, um, uses the image of drowning, like Mm. in a a body of water. And, you know, say you're in in the ocean, right? You can drown 100 feet down, or you can drown an inch down. Mm -hmm. But as long as you're under the water, you're still drowning, and you need somebody to save you. Right. Sure. So yeah. there's there's this huge continuum where different people can fall in terms of how, quote unquote, depraved they are. Right. But 
at the end of the day, the idea is that God, Jesus, however you're going to articulate this, needs to do something to save you, do something on your behalf. Um, and the Reformed tradition obviously has a very strong emphasis on making sure we all understand that point, right? Mm -hmm. It drives this doctrine. It drives the predestination conversation. It's all about securing that we get it through our heads that we need Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, but the, yeah, the, the rhetoric gets a little carried away. <laughs> Just uh, a little. In, in can, I ask can I ask y'all a question about this real quick? Because oh, I don't have you one your audio. Is it me? Do I what? Oh, you're back. Oh, there. Go ahead. Um, the, you know, I, and I grew up uh, reformed Baptist, but not in a conservative context. And for me, the piety of total depravity is connected to a kind of piety that loves grace. And mm -hmm. it wasn't until I went to college and met other Calvinists that I got real disgusted with it. So like as yeah. someone that, you know, read Jonathan Edwards and Spurgeon and stuff for their quiet times, um, like it, it was, it can be received in a real different way, right? So total depravity could be the way in which you sit there before uh, uh, the God of love who has seized you, uh, it, it claimed you in baptism before you could speak. And then you get to know yourself as you're coming of age. You get to know your finitude, your brokenness, the way that you harm and hurt even the people you love. You resonate when Paul goes, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I do, I don't want to do. What in the world am I doing? And at that point, when you say, guess what? It is, you really don't have anything to contribute here. Like, I know it feels like you have something to gain or to yeah. earn, but that promise that you are a child of God was given to you before you could speak. And it was given to every child that was born into this community. And our job is that as you grow and learn to speak and learn to read scripture and to hear it and pronounce the confessions, our job is to remind you that at no point, even the most saintly person in the world can earn or deserve the gift of God because God is giving God's self. That's literally what happened in the incarnation. You're being yeah. invited into the divine life. Total depravity is supposed to be, in, on its best days, the reason you get to exhale and then be honest. Yeah. And then what happens when you're in the opening of the worship service? Because he gave such a beautiful reform. Like, why do we sing the doxology after the offering? Because your whole life is an offering. It's not mm -hmm. buying anything. How do you begin the service? You come in, and it's almost always a creation psalm set to music of some sort. We're naming gratitude for creation and that you're part of it. And then what do you do when you recognize that gratitude and then look at yourself? You confess your sins. Is it because you're filthy, rotten, and horrible? Or is it because you know in the context of grace you can be totally depraved and totally chosen all the way through death. And that's the next step in the service because the yeah. very next thing we do is hear the declaration of pardon and we go from there and we shake everybody's hands because we're all in the same boat together mm. and we've all been pulled out of the shit together, right? And the key thing is, and this came through in the way that Trip was framing things, but I just want to underscore it. This is all past tense, right? Mm. This is not something that God is possibly going to do in future tense. This Providing of grace is something that God has already done and is always doing to and with us in Christ. It is not something that we have to trigger in some way because, again, it's not something that we do. So for and here's here's why I think this is important. Um, 
and sometimes you read the sermons of some of the reform folks and they're really bashing people because they feel like folks are losing this point and they want to underscore it. The thing to remember is they are preaching those sermons to people who have been baptized. They are preaching those sermons to people who are, as far as anybody at the time considered it, inside the community of faith. They are not evangelizing, quote-unquote, non-Christians by preaching, quote-unquote, total depravity. Mm. That is not what's happening, and that is a hugely inappropriate use, right? Mm. Um, It's a reminder, as Tripp was saying, about where we are without grace, but remember, we have it. We got it. We're always receiving it, and we're reminding each other of that fact in our community of faith. And that's, it's really the reminder of having received that grace and understanding uh, everything that goes into that, that is where the doctrine comes from. I trip, you did a great job with that, but it's, it's past tense. This isn't, you know, you got to fix yourself and get that grace. Like, no, God has already done all of this for you. I think one of the hard parts for me, and I, by the way, this this is really helpful, both Travis and Trip, for you uh, both kind of explaining some of this. I think for me, I'm not sure for the audience out there who's listening to this, but it is tough to kind of like hear some of the same language explained very differently, but there are still like pathways in my head that just kind of go to like this, yeah. I don't know how I feel about that part. Like, I, like to be frank with you, I fully acknowledge, of course, that you're right, I am not perfect and I cannot do things on my own. I acknowledge that. It also still gives me a weird type of feeling to think I can't, I have to be saved. And I, I, I know that sounds weird now, but like, I think just kind of coming so strongly out of like oh, sure. that, that part of my tradition, I don't want to lose the beauty of what that can actually signify, but my mind is still trying to catch up to almost where my heart is, right? Where it's like, I feel right. that, like that's some, it's actually kind of gorgeous, but my mind's like, wait, but that kind of brings us back into this place of like, you mm-hmm. are just a worm, which gave you so much anxiety and really um you devalued yourself so extreme that like i i feel myself sometimes almost going to the other end of that right where it's like i'm always like just you know good even beyond my mistakes like who really cares but it's tough i think for me to kind of re-inhale this again even though it's a different kind of flavor does that make sense yeah it makes total sense i mean you've got a kind of ptsd on around some of these (laughs) concepts um your language, and not it, mine. It, it, it makes well, it makes it makes complete sense to me. But I mean, you know, Trip and I can articulate these things and and use the classic doctrinal um, language for it. But again, as an actual Reformed Christian who lives and worships in an actual Reformed Christian community, um, we don't talk about this stuff, right? <laughs> we've we've talked about the liturgy and the way that we enact this in our lives. And I teach adult Sunday school classes yearly um, for a couple months out of each year, and we get into theology and talk through all kinds of things. But nobody's nobody's pushing these doctrines with these names because that's in the museum. I mean, it might be helpful mm. if mm. people are asking questions and wanting to get conceptually deeper, but we're not getting into the pulpit or doing readings or anything like that on a Sunday morning trying to convince people that they need to believe that tulip is correct, right? Mm. It's just not important. <laughs> because mm-hmm. we've got actual worship of God to do. We're showing up. We got bigger fish to fry. Yeah, makes sense. Let's let's move on a little bit. Let's talk about, I think, maybe one of the biggest ones for me. Um, predetermined, you know, uh, predestination, this idea, again, how I was taught before the foundations of the, of the world, God has chosen some for for grace and some for wrath uh vessels vessels of wrath romans 9 etc and uh hopefully you're just one of the ones that god for reasons unknown to us has 
picked you and not and not your brother, right? Uh, what are some of your your thoughts on on that view and like maybe how it, it differs from how you understand the tradition now? Today we discuss Miro. Today I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now, uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, gathering information. You get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. That's M-I-R-O.com. Um, lots of thoughts. Um, <laughs> I, I want to, again, affirm what Tripp said in a moment ago when he was preaching to us. Um, the point of that doctrine is to secure God's act of grace apart from anything we can do. Why? Because we can always question ourselves. And this kind of gets into Luther's whole crisis of faith that he had. Have I done enough? And there's this um, medieval doctrine kicking around in the brand of theology that Luther studied and one of the one of the main brands of theology kicking around at the dawn of the Reformation that said, all you have to do to be saved is do what you can. But Luther's problem was he could never convince himself that he had. He could never convince himself that he had actually done all that he could. And so that kept driving him and driving him and sending him into despair at his own failures. And so what this is trying to secure is to say, no, you can't do it. God's going to do it for you. And in fact, God already did way back when. Um, So you don't have to worry about it. You Hmm. can now just move forward in living the Christian life. You can put that anxiety behind you and you can move forward. That's the goal. All that said, um, conceptually, the way they worked this out at the time and through the years has some serious problems. Um, I am not going to deny that at all. So, for instance, um, Calvin's own articulation of predestination, there was a guy uh, who was arguing with Calvin in Geneva, a guy named um, Robert Lemoyne, I believe is how you pronounce it. Uh, who call, who referred to the doctrine, and pardon my French, who referred to it as, quote-unquote, fucking predestination, because he hated it so much. Mm. But even Calvin, when he's writing about it, he talks about God making these decisions, and he refers to it as a dreadful decree, mm. mm-hmm. a dreadful decree, in the sense that it fills him with a kind of dread to stand there looking at it and thinking about it too long. When I read Calvin on this subject, I feel turmoil, right? The same kind of response that I hear you articulating as you kind of re-encounter this language and these concepts, I I feel when I read Calvin on the subject, and I always have, and it's because I believe that Calvin was deeply conflicted about this. And I know I'm psychologizing the guy, but I've been reading him for a couple decades at this point. I think I, I get to do that a little bit. 
Um, he's deeply conflicted. He calls it dreadful, and yet he feels like he's compelled to say this. Why? Because he finds it in Scripture. Mm-hmm. He finds it in Scripture, and because it seems to be there, he feels like he has to teach it, even though I think deep down it upset him at a certain level. Mm-hmm. It does not mesh well with his humanism. Like you were saying before, that's surprising. Yeah, right. it can be, right? There's there's um, some countervailing trends in this tradition. Um, so he called, he's, he's deeply conflicted, but he finds it in Scripture. He feels he has to teach it. And in teaching it, he even carries the logic farther than Augustine had. So for instance, Augustine, Augustine, Sometimes I call him Gus for fun. Um, He made a distinction between things that God permits and things that God actively causes. But Calvin says, you know what? That distinction doesn't make a lot of sense morally. If you allow it to happen, but you could have stopped it, you might as well be causing it. And so, you know, he gets himself conceptually um, backed into a corner with some of this stuff. And on, on the doctrine of providence, too, on God's providential rule of the world, he has a hard time articulating um, that conceptually he kind of backs himself into this deterministic corner, backs himself into this corner of seeming to imply that God is somehow causing all the bad things in the world. Even though every time he was asked if that's what he meant, he said, no way in hell. And anybody mm. who says that doesn't count as a Christian, mm. right? So, but, so he's, he's backed into a corner because he doesn't see another way out of reading scripture, Right. And so what I what I want to relocate is if if this doctrine gives us pause, that's in the New Testament. Right. The Reformed tradition is just one attempt to try to figure out how to make sense of what's in the New Testament. There are Mm -hmm. other attempts and there have been long arguments through the centuries about which one is better. Ultimately, it comes down to if, if you're a Protestant which passages of scripture do you think are clearest? Why? Mm -hmm. Because scripture interprets scripture. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, different traditions put their, plant their feet in different locations. And for much of the reform tradition, it's planted its feet on, well, it seems like some people go to heaven and some people go to hell. Right. Until a guy named Karl Barth came along and said, no, I think the clear (laughs) thing I think the clear Sorry, thing about Travis, scripture... Sorry, Travis, for a second I was like, oh, we're going to end on that note. Okay, and then you're like, until... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank God. Yeah, I mean, Tripp, Tripp's been sitting over here waiting to see how long it would take me. Um, but Karl Barth comes along in the 20th century. He completely rehashes this doctrine and says, no, the basic thing that I think we can see in Scripture is that God loves human beings and sends Jesus to save them. And he rethinks it all. So that now double predestination doesn't necessarily mean that God picks some people to go to heaven and picks some people to go to hell. No, God picks Jesus to be the elect human being and God picks Jesus to be the reprobated human being. It all happens in Jesus so that we can all be elect in Jesus. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and you just don't know it yet. Some people already know it. Other people don't know it yet, but that's the way things are, right? Mm. So he completely reconfigures that doctrine. He's able to see it from a completely different angle. But you know what? Karl Barth is in the Reformed tradition just as much yeah. as Tulip is. Mm. And, and would you, that the Barth thing I think is important, uh, and there was even a couple questions in here in the, that were in the chat around reformed theology and modern historical scholarship, about mm-hmm. maybe science things and pluralism and this kind of stuff. Um, there were, if the reformed tradition is always reforming, 
then um, to do it well is to give a contextual, situational, struggling to be faithful with the critical heartbeat of the humanist tradition in our present. Our present knows way more about biblical scholarship and such. For example, even Karl Barth's move to go like, if you want to be really reformed and God tells us who Jesus or God is revealed in Christ, then you have to be a universalist. It's not personal. But, you know, even part of that in looking at the passages Calvin emphasized versus the ones Bart does, Bart gave priority to the text we actually know Paul wrote. Right. So if you look at some of the notions of the eschaton and how it functions, um, you will notice that Karl Bart uh, emphasizes the first Corinthians imagery of um, of eschaton. What happens there? What's being redeemed and judged in Christ? Sin, law, death. What are they doing? They become subject to the son so that what? That God's all in all. Right. This is the most historic explanation of the power of the resurrection of Christ in the New Testament, the oldest explicit outworking. And Bart wants just to go, well, for reforming and keep reforming and the resurrection is how God in Christ makes sin, law and death subject. And then the result of that is God is all in all. You tell me what God has made in God's own image that is not included in the all in all. And then he takes that passage and goes and reads the ones in Colossians and Ephesians that Calvin gave priority that sound like there's individuals being left out and individuals being brought in. But I I say that just because that question about history, right, what he's doing as a good humanist is learning biblical scholarship, historical criticism, these kinds of things. And then going, if Colossians and Ephesians are people picking up the legacy of Paul and interpreting it, what happens if we give Paul priority? What happens if sin, law, and death are powers that keep us from participating in the divine life, not things that claim souls for eternity that God made to participate in that divine life? Um, The the same thing um, around the history stuff. You might pick someone like Schleiermacher, who's in the Reformed tradition. Yep. Uh, if you're thinking around the questions of religion and science, someone like Jürgen Moltmann, who's in the Reformed tradition. Um, yep. Like the re- the reason I almost stayed in it uh, <laughs> as someone who's kind of the polar opposite, personally, right, uh, even right. though I was thinking about I'm that. so Reformed, my piety is still very much uh, shaped by being a Reformed Baptist. Um, is that uh, it? Is it? It, it celebrates faithful changing of the mind hmm. if, if you do it well. And I think one of the things we see in American evangelicalism hmm. is that part of the Reformed tradition, not the ones at Princeton where Travis got his Ph.D. or like the PCUSA, but like when you think PCA and the hard right wingers, they said, oh, we'll be humanist up to a point. Like we're hmm. totally down to read the Bible in Greek and learn the classics. But, you know, what we're not going to do. Uh, we're not going to engage in science. We're not going to really get to know religious others as something other than objects for our colonialist mission. We're not going like, and then you get the tension in culture. American anti-intellectualism yeah. right. means that reform tradition gets stuck in the 17th century. And yeah. so figures like Bart in the 20th or Schleiermacher in the 19th and these things show that there is a beautiful version of the reform tradition uh, that. Uh, people just don't know about in much of American Christianity. But even well, think, in America, Trip, oh, even in America, B.B. Um, B. Warfield, right? 
at Princeton, one of the professors came after Charles Hodge, who a lot of these American reform types these days, they, they are ultimately students of Charles Hodge and the way Charles Hodge does theology. Um, Charles Hodge did theology by breaking the biblical text down into individual propositions as best that he could, that he could then move around and fit mm. together and do all kinds. It's, it's a theological accountant mentality, and I absolutely loathe it because I'm a humanist. Um, now, he leaves Princeton. B.B. Warfield is the next professor of theology there. And B.B. Warfield is actually the guy who coins the term inerrancy. Hmm. So you brought that up as part of your story, Tim, um, early, very early on in our conversation, right? B.B. Warfield, Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1890s, 1880s, coins the term inerrancy. And hmm. we can get into why there's, they feel a need to reassert biblical authority. Well, actually, let me get into why. The reason well, why. Can, can I pause you really quick, Travis? <laughs> sure. We, I, I want to get there. And this is, uh, I, I, I just think that there are a few golden nuggets I just want to pull out for the audience, make sure that, that they're all tracking with us here. Sure, I, I'm um, putting a pin in inerrancy. Yeah, definitely. I, that is on my list of things to talk about. Um, I, I, again, I want, I want to repeat in a very succinct way what I'm hearing you say, uh, Travis, essentially is that, yeah, like this view of, of uh, predestination is definitely a thing in the Reformed tradition. However, if we're faithful to the call of always reforming, always rethinking things, it's important that we realize that that is an elastic view of how we can view those yeah. things based on better biblical understanding, better biblical scholarship. And then you cited, I think, Bart uh, as one of the people who was like, hey, uh, in light of what we know now compared to back then, maybe there's a better way of thinking about this idea of predestination or predeterminism. But I think the rub that you guys both pointed out for us, for me, is that the tradition I was given was stuck in that like maybe yeah. 17th century, right? Um, and then applied to a very different cultural and contextual and also just intellectual system. Um, and I have to just say, like, I found it pretty early on, like just kind of full of contradictions for that way of thinking, right? Like, okay, somehow God like didn't create evil, but he also decreed evil, but also he's using evil. Like, this, it just seems to collapse all on in, on itself so often. And then the best arguments I heard were like, well, you just don't understand the mind of God. Then I'm thinking, but you're also a human. Like, how do you understand the mind of God? You know? So yeah. I just want to point that out for the audience of like, I appreciate that, that it seems like what you're saying so far, big picture in this conversation is like, certainly there are ways in the reformed tradition that that say that view these things in that way. However, there are other ways of viewing these things that are actually more willing to engage the current cultural moment that we're in and maybe even rethink some of the other ways of viewing these things based on better evidence or data or just even understanding about the world, right? Is that kind of nope. that's kind of the the spirit of what I'm capturing here so far. Would you say that's pretty accurate? I hard agree. Boom. All right. So friends, hopefully you're tracking because again, I know a lot of us, I can't tell you, Travis and Tripp, how many DMs I've gotten over the past couple of years of just like, I don't get it. I was told I'm a worthless person my whole life. Now I just have like major self-esteem issues and I, I don't know what to do about this thing anymore. And like, is my is my brother really predestined for hell? Like, how do I how do I handle this? And sometimes, you know, the I'm not the biblical expert here. I'm not the academic here. So I'm like, well, here's a resource, right? But I think what makes this difficult is that in our current even 
evangelical moment in America, especially, those voices are so loud and they're so confident about how loud they are. I mean, they like really John MacArthur, I've, I've done his stuff many times. He's so incredibly confident that like, if you don't see it this way, you're a moron. If you don't see it this way, you're on the way to hell. Like that's just how he sees it. I think when you're brought up at age like two, three, four, five, with that kind of confidence from the pulpit, you just take it as absolute objective fact as 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 objective as gravity is right so i think a lot of people are trying to rethink this stuff and they know what they don't want to be like but maybe they don't know about some other other things to fill that void with so i appreciate this conversation because i think it's helping people maybe think about this stuff in a more broader context that isn't throw it all away, but maybe, hey, this actually is kind of helpful for me, or maybe it is, hey, I'm glad I'm in this room with you guys, but honestly, I'm ready to move on and go over to the process theology room and, and process party with trip, you know, so... <laughs> <laughs> so well, the, I, I the really problem is the you'll, you'll find me hanging out over there with trip too. Even oh, you know, you're, which, you're not reformed. <laughs> which Tim at the at beer camp, one of the fun things I'm super excited about is Travis and Donna Bowman, who's a, a process theologian, are going to do one of our super nerd breakout sessions on sovereignty. Because, oh, I love that. Uh, they, it, it, in that way, I actually think it's fascinating, right? Because a beautiful expression of the reformed tradition say like you see in bart is that the sovereignty of god is connected to a divine decision both to create but also to redeem all and in the process vision the divine decision is to be the possibility of inbreaking love in every moment and will be there and promises to be there in every moment but see underneath them unlike say a thomist depiction or some of the other schools of thought, they both actually share that our trust is in the character of God who is being expressed in history. One, because God is the author of it at the beginning in redemption, and the other because God is the one who refuses to be God without us moment to moment. And uh, so, like, uh, and, and which is how my piety because- switched. <laughs> pretty easily ultimately we share that commitment because both sides of that particular conversation actually read the bible yeah there's always that perk <laughs> all right um, travis inerrancy go it's all you my friend <laughs> that was a quality right. segue though <laughs> it was it was i'm really good at those <laughs> so um the catholics do papal infallibility they proclaim that dogma in the 1870s, I want to say. And so if the Catholics have, you know, that's just the latest move in the Catholic Protestant argument about where the proper authority lies, the highest authority lies. Is it the Pope or is it the Bible? And so now the Catholics are saying, hey, look, we've got an infallible Pope. Well, the Protestants have to come back and say, well, look, we've got an inerrant Bible, right? So it, and it happens like a decade later, like these things go together. Um, And all of it is a response at some level to anxiety about new scientific developments. What's happening at the end of the 19th century? It's the development of Darwinism, the theory of natural selection, evolution, and these things. And that's, that's driving a lot of intellectual anxiety. Because honestly, for the first time now, it's possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Previously, you needed God to fill in gaps to explain how the world works. Now, you don't really need that. And so um, you've got a lot and a lot, a lot of anxiety about that. And on the Catholic side, just anxiety about authority and are people going to listen to us anymore when we tell them to do certain things and to pray uh, and do penance and all of this kind of stuff. 
So they have to have an infallible pope, then we have to have an infallible Bible, and then B.B. Warfield comes along to try to theorize what this would look like, and he, again, is working in the Reformed tradition. He's building on previous confessions and approaches to the doctrine of Scripture, and he comes up with this idea of inerrancy. But at the exact same time, B.B. Warfield, the father of the doctrine of inerrancy, did not think that it necessarily contradicted evolution. Today, we discuss Miro. Listen, when it comes to running client workshops, the dream, of course, is to get those creative juices flowing, right? But typically what ends up happening is thousands of hours get wasted because of poorly facilitated meetings. So I have Maya with me today. She's a consultant who runs Fortune 100 workshops from leadership training to team building, and she has the insider tip on what makes things work. Maya? Thank you, Jason. I've been doing this a long time. My number one tip is to bring everyone into that visual collaboration platform. So personally, I use Miro and it's completely changed how I interact with the room. You have to give people a way to feel like they're in the room, even when they're not. That's something you can do easily in Miro. Otherwise, they've seen the same slides and format thousand times. Falling asleep, eyes glazing over, yawns, all that. Exactly. When people follow me on the Miro board, everyone is literally going on a journey with me. We're adding thoughts, we're reacting, and we're voting for the best ideas. It's great. Connective magic. I like it. That's M. I'm sorry, what? B.B. Warfield, the father Uh of the doctrine of inerrancy, Uh did not think that it contradicted evolution. That sounds like fake news, Travis. I got to interrupt. That just sounds, I don't understand how that works because inerrancy for me is obviously a literal Genesis 1 or and 2. They're both, they're the same story in the inerrant world that I'm a part of. And if you don't affirm, you know, uh, that that it was all six days and Adam and Eve were the first two physical beings on earth, like you are a damn heretic who's definitely not reformed, let alone saved. So go ahead, Travis, blow my mind some more. (laughs) Well, his position was that if you think that evolution is the mechanism by which god created the world then that's fine okay right (laughs) makes sense to me (laughs) you can be i mean it's possible to be an atheist who believes in the theory of uh, accepts the theory of evolution right and bb warfield would take issue with that because he's not an atheist but he also if you are a theist who believes that this is simply describing the process god used then not an issue Um, The reason is that B.B. Warfield looks at scripture and he realizes, look, this is not one book, right? We all carry around the Bible. We think it's one book. It is not. It's a full library that was put together over a span of like a thousand years and even more if you use the backstory. Oh, Oh, sorry. (laughs) I I, I got distracted by the comments. I had to put up there. Like, I just love Evan's comments. People just walk (laughs) around with this knowledge. Like, I know, Evan, I'm with you. This is why we have the podcast. Yeah, we don't just walk around with it. We come on podcasts and drop little (laughs) knowledge bombs. Um, But yeah, so he thought that was totally fine because you look at the Bible, you see it's an act, a full library, and not every book in the Bible and every part of every book is written the same damn way. And none of them. Right. None of them are written like a scientific treatise trying to explain to you how the world works in scientific terms. In fact, there's poetry, there's saga, there's narrative, there's all this different stuff from all these different times and places in different languages with different norms. And B.B. Warfield said, in effect, whenever you read scripture, you have to pay attention to the genre. And the kind of genre that it is means it makes certain kinds of claims and not others. 
big picture, the Bible is trying to tell you what you need to know to have a proper relationship with God. The Bible is not trying to tell you everything you need to know full stop. Hmm. Those are completely different things. Right. So right. Um, even this whole inerrancy thing that has become so big in these conservative reform, quote unquote reformed, I always put it in scare quotes, um, <laughs> circles is um, an absolute departure from the actual reformed theologian who actually came up with the doctrine. Hmm. Right. Now, in the reformed tradition, scripture is hugely important. You see this through all the confessions. Um, some of the confessions are closer to the common conceptions of inerrancy. Um, for instance, the Westminster Confession, than mm. other confessions are. But if we look at Calvin and Calvin's treatment of this subject, the key thing is that for Calvin, word and spirit always go together. Mm. Word and spirit always go together. And this is true in the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They always go together. This is true when it comes to the word of uh, Jesus Christ incarnate. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit, and this is also true with Scripture as the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's use of Scripture. And in fact, Calvin thinks that you can say that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, not in the sense of a dictation theory, which would make absolutely no sense to him because he's a humanist. Um, or actually, it would it would literally be meaningless because if the Holy Spirit is mimicking all these different styles from all these different times and places, then it becomes meaningless to say that there's mm. some kind of dictation theory. Um, but anyway, uh, the Holy Spirit uses Scripture to accomplish the Holy Spirit's ends. And the way that he articulates this is he says, Scripture is self-authenticating right? You don't believe that scripture is true because mm. you pick it up one day and you open it up and there's light glowing off the pages. And as soon as you look at it, you're like, oh my gosh, this is obviously objectively provably true, right? Mm. That is not how scripture work. You open it up. It's like any other book, but then the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of you and says, you know what? You should believe this and convinces you. And it's the Holy Spirit working through Scripture to authenticate it, to prove its authenticity as the Word of God to you in that experiential, existential, self-involved way. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of self always go together. It's that union of Scripture and the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the Holy Spirit makes Scripture Scripture when you read it and faith happens. When you read scripture and the Holy Spirit sparks faith in you, that's when scripture is the word of God. Hmm. And this goes all the way back to Calvin. Karl Barth revived it in a very clear expression more recently, but it's there throughout the Reformed tradition, this idea that, you know, scripture is a book. Maybe you think it's a good book. Other bits of it are written pretty crappily, right? Even Calvin said, you know what? Some of those numbers in the Old Testament, like with how many Israelites went across Egypt and all this, those numbers have to be exaggerated. Even Calvin was like, eh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure about some of this. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because it's not its objective, quote unquote, truth in any kind of historical scientific sense that matters. It's mm. the fact that the Holy Spirit reaches through it and grabs hold of you. Mm. And, and the, the thing that you may not pick up on this that I – that at least in my experience at a Baptist school in North Carolina, I kept trying to explain this to the young, angry reform <laughs> types. I'm like, the reason he's using that language is because he is a Western Christian. Like the whole notion of the Trinity, the filioque clause, like there's like a line. So it goes father, the word, son, the spirit. And if you're here, a finite anything, God 
can take up into God's self anything God wants. It can become an event. And what is grace? A gift, right? You don't think it or believe it. You trust it because it happens to you. It's seized like mm. you fall in love and all these kinds of images. Well, it, you see that then there's God, the word. And it becomes the word, whatever's down here, finite, like scripture or the Eucharist or anything, right? It's not magic transubstantiation. They're criticizing that. No, these things become things that God seizes, and then it becomes an event. Then, mm. like, it, but this three, the the Trinitarian formula for the West that it goes Father, Son, and Word, not Father, Son. Well, I guess I'm not all in here. You know, like a triangle, the father's at the top and then the son and the spirit are at the bottom. That's Eastern right. triangle. No, it goes father, son, spirit. Well, you see that going on and then Calvin's going, scripture's trustworthy. It's authoritative. It's inspired, but it becomes the word of God when the spirit seizes you in your heart. Well, how else can all these people that are jerks to acting against the will of God go around speaking the name when they have God's word is God's word not powerful enough no it hasn't become God's word yet the spirit hadn't seized it there's always this dynamism that's it within it that gets squashed I think by a shallow understanding of sovereignty in the in in the reformed tradition um, and one thing I think that might be helpful uh, Travis because what well, one you have a really cool new book out on Karl Barth's uh, spirituality but like yeah. Could you give an example of how Bart takes that and then ask that question again, not just about scripture and historical criticism, but then how, if you have uh, this logic of father, word, spirit, would you even understand the presence of God in other religious traditions or say in secular political movements working for justice? <laughs> like Bart asks those questions and gives a no. freaking reformed answer inspired no. by Calvin. Bart did not talk about other religions without totally shitting on them because he was reformed. Right. Sorry. Not true. He was actually a uh, kind of kind of keen on um, Pure Land Buddhism. Now he didn't really know quick, Jack Travis, shit just so about you know, many other religions. So you know, <laughs> Evan Evan says anyone else down for a because he's a humanist drinking game. Trip. I'm sure you would be. Do I I'm get sure to drink? You, yeah, sure you can drink, but I know Trip. You probably <laughs> we, we can do it at beer camp. All we right, can do it at beer right, camp. Right. Okay. Right, I just right. have diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> all right, Travis, it's all you. I, I am so Here's curious. I, get, I, I just hold, hold on. I'm sorry. I, I have to cut you off here really quick. <laughs> I just need to say this. I'm. I forgive me. I cannot express to you enough how what that whole little statement was totally contradicts everything I was taught about what it means to be a genuine like Christian Jesus person. And so I'm just so curious because I think a lot of people, again, that we engage with that, maybe, maybe you're even watching this live, do think about, well, how do we, how do we deal with other religions? How do we respect other religious, uh, other religions? You know, I mean, even as like a, a Christian universalist, so to speak, like universal reconciliation, the belief is that all things are reconciled through Christ. So at the end of all time, you know, so I'm just kind of curious, like, how do we handle this other religious world that we are inhabiting, right? There's a lot of other religions out there and deeply form traditions with their own arguments in house that like the ones that we're doing now so go for it i would love to hear your thoughts on this well it, might, it helps that i'm a professor of religion i really you know this has been a really fun conversation because every time you ask me a question i've got like 15 different directions i want to take it um and i don't want to sound like i'm beating a dead horse but i mean you you say how you know this has been really enlightening i see comments about folks who are who are appreciating um the conversation and my my halfway flippant but also true response is it's amazing what happens if you talk to an actual reformed christian about <laughs> reformed theology um so 
Karl Barth, again, another actual Reformed Christian who did theology, um, said that you can encounter God in a flowering shrub, a flute concerto, Russian communism, or a dead dog. But, <laughs> but when you encounter God, yeah. the God that you encounter is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's how um, we can practice an openness to all different kinds of religious traditions. Um, the other thing that I, and, and again, Bart didn't necessarily practice this very well. He was not particularly interested in other traditions. Um, he talks about some other traditions and doesn't really know very much about them. Um, what I would want to, to say is that each religious tradition in the world is up to its own thing. Um, for a long time in religious studies, people took the tack to say all religions are just different paths up the same mountain. Um, but I think that's absolutely wrong. Um, each religious tradition uh, is identifying a different kind of problem with human existence and then trying to articulate a solution to that problem. Hmm. And so it's all based on human experience, and we all have some certain commonalities of human experience. I mean, we're born, we love, we die, right? There, is, there are some consistence. Um, but the way that we experience and conceptualize and theorize those things in different cultures and times and places are very, very different and have given right. rise to many different religious traditions. And so um, we have to respect what the traditions are trying to accomplish. And at their best, they're trying to solve problems for people and make the world a better place. Hmm. Um, religions can also be very difficult, terrible, harmful things. And yeah. we need to call them out on that um, according to our own lights and according to their best lights as well. Yeah. Um Gosh, there was one other point I wanted to get into with this, but it's well, just flown right out of my mind. Well, that's okay, because, I mean, let's face it. We've been going for almost an hour and 15 minutes now. I told you all before we started recording, an hour and a half is my absolute you know, hard cutoff time. I do want to start landing the plane, because I, I want to ask you maybe this one last question, and then we'll kind of wrap up here. And again, Travis, yeah. I want to say thank you for so much for your time for coming on the podcast trip. Of course, you know, in all seriousness, thanks for making time to come on as well. And just have this conversation, because I, I, I've said it many times, I don't want to overstate it, but so many people are just very thirsty for this kind of dialogue and understanding and like wisdom that folks like yourselves have spent a lot of hours reading and pondering and meditating on. So it's really a a true privilege to have you both on. I think my last question is, I think a lot of people, including myself, know what the maybe um, the fast food version of reformed theology in America has to offer, right? Like I, I know what, what, what it's trying to do. I'm aware of like the perspectives it takes. I'm aware of its consistent uh, alignment with like far right politics. And it just is, it's only growing more and more fused, frankly, at this moment. What does your flavor, I'm not sure how you define <laughs> your version of reformed theology, but what is your, what is your corner of the, all right. What does your <laughs> corner of the Reformed tradition have to offer Americans and really the world, but right now in America in 2023, that is promoting human flourishing, that is promoting you know a better way forward for all of us? I would just love to know. Trip, what was the tagline that you suggested for this conversation? <laughs> oh, why real Reformed theologians are socialist universalists. <laughs> That's right. Well, we've covered the universalism bit a bit. Yeah. Uh, maybe we need to get into socialism. So, um, here's the bottom line for me. The Reformed tradition is an idol-busting theology. Hmm. Um, it is a theology that's 100% beginning to end about breaking idols. And you see this in the museum of the Reformed tradition 
um, because, you know, we went into churches that we took over and we broke statues, right? We literally <laughs> break idols. Uh, but it's also a conceptual point. So if Reformed theology and reform, living as a Reformed Christian is about the self-involving knowledge of God, the way that one encounters Christ and one's own existence is existentially implicated in that, um, then what that means is all of our specific socio-historical times and places are included in that encounter because we are the people that we are in that encounter. And as the people that we are, we are shaped with all the socio-political, economic, cultural forces that shape every other human being in our own time and place, along with our own personal histories and proclivities and personalities and all of that. We are the people that we are. Now, Calvin says that human nature is, quote, a perpetual factory of idols. We have this encounter with God, and then we feel compelled to speak about it. But as soon as we speak about it, we betray it because you can't, capture, you can't paint a bird in flight, right? It's mm. a thing that happens to us, and we can't ever nail down once and for all what it was. And all we can do is try to stammer after it. And as soon as anybody thinks they can nail it down, they have created an idol, and Reformed theology is supposed to come along and, come along and kick it to pieces, because mm. that's what we do, right? Mm. So it's idol-busting theology, and that idolatry extends to all aspects of life, right? It's not just about sentences and propositions that have the word God in it, because it's self-involving. We're existentially implicated as the people we are in a specific socio-historical place and time with all of our relationships to one another, interpersonal relationships, economic relationships, political relationships, exploitative uh, relationships that involve privilege and power and domination, all of these things are there in that encounter and are radically called into question. Why? Because none of us is 100% perfect, mm. right? So even that universalist socialist, their idols need to be broken too, right? As we move on, and you know, another guy that I study is Helmut Goldwitzer. He talks about the true socialism of the kingdom of God. It's this receding horizon that we should always be chasing, even mm. though we'll never get there, but we need to get better and better and better. So in that encounter with Christ, all of that is called into question. All of our idols are trampled, and the true test of the honesty of one's encounter with Christ is how how consistent are you and how dogged are you in thinking through and trying to identify where your idols are and then systematically taking them down and doing your best to articulate what all this means without just setting up another one. That's reformed theology. Reformed and always reforming. Yeah. Semper reformanda. Do you, Travis, could you give an example of that? Because like the one that pops in my head uh, that I pretty sure i read in one of your books so like in uh so early carl bart is uh is clergy in working class area and when he starts to get to know the actual lives of the working class and sees them being exploited uh by the the economic and cultural elites like then he goes well, what what what's going on here? I mean, Jesus says you can serve God or mammon, right? There must be something the Christians who are exploiting these people are serving other than God, because if you're serving God, the dignity of these people and their families would be 
would be recognized in the sharing of the profit uh, from the yep. industry, right? And and eat those kind of questions are and or and, and then later how nationalism became a thing that he saw mm-hmm. in the grassroots and then thought as reformed clergy, I have to call out when. Uh, we our allegiance yep. to the nation or our allegiance to our bottom line put the well-being of our neighbors and even enemies in the meat grinder of, of nationalism or economism and these kind of things. Like, I, like I just think that like, he gave this answer, but the the thing that's so compelling about it is when you look at reformed communities who ask the idle question and confess their sins, and they aren't just like you know, like masturbation for middle schoolers and watching our movies or whatever but like i don't know stuff jesus talked about then that idol smashing type thing that that desire to have your confessions mean something the freedom that comes with recognizing our finitude and brokenness uh they can actually make the gospel something that challenges Mm -hmm. all these idols not just finished theology but the things that we can't understand ourselves without the privilege we're protecting by imagining oh we're gonna make christianity great by doing what you know uh, i think here bart you see in his life it's being a minister and looking at the working poor and the rise of nationalism that makes him say let me proclaim the gospel more and um and and if the gospel is that we all need god and God is already there for us, then what's going to divide us from people, right? What is there that legitimately separates me from any other human being? We are all, as far as God's concerned, elect in Christ to live reconciled lives in community with God and one another. That's the end game. That's the goal. That's what the whole thing is about. And so why should I then separate myself into a separate category, no matter how that category is going to be constructed, from anybody else in the world? So this would be saved, not saved. Stupid category. This should be rich, poor. Should be a stupid category. This should be, um, to take the example from Bart's life, German or Jewish. Stupid category. None of these things matter. They are idols that simply get in the way when we don't want to take seriously the claim that God is making on us by, precisely by saving us. And so that we don't have to do anything. God is saying, look, this is how it should be. Um, Helmut Golwitzer, who I study, one of Bart's students, he said, the the holy other God wants a holy other community. The God that is completely different than anything that we know in this world wants us to be a community that is completely different than any of the normal ways that we've set up community in this world. Hmm. Um, all of that goes hand in hand. And you see this in the living reform tradition more recently as well. You've got the Barman Confession from Barth's period and the, struggle, the church struggle against the Nazis. You've got the Confession of 67 in the United States um, that, among other things, kind of took aim at racism. You've got the Belhar Confession from the early 1980s in South Africa that was about racism. You've got the Accra Confession from the 90s that's about socioeconomic questions. I mean, the reform tradition never stopped confessing. Hmm. We're still, we reformed Christians are still confessing and trying to think through the demands of the gospel, the demands of grace upon the way that we live out life in community with one another in the world today. And it means breaking some shit. I, I love that. I think that's a great note to kind of close this conversation on. I think, 
I, you know, I'll be honest, Travis, I was a little skeptical going in. I'm like, okay, like make reform theology great again, which is my title given to me by trip fair. But I'm like, I don't know. I'm kind of over the reform conversations of like, blah, 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 blah. I'm just over it, you know, but I I have to admit, (laughs) I have to admit as I'm talking and listening, I'm like, hmm, you know, some of this stuff, maybe, listen, maybe it's, it's not the room I want to sit in long-term for me, but there's like still some beauty here that I'm like, Ooh, that, that is thought provoking. I need to wrestle with that. I need to think about this more. And also, I, I want to just zoom out for a minute and just say that the, I, I've had a lot of these conversations over the past two years. I think we're at like 170 podcast episodes. I've talked to scholars wow. all over the place, you know, from folks like you and and womanist theologians and and scholars on, on Christian nationalism and all that stuff, ethicists and everything. And I just continue to get amazed at how big these conversations and this Christian tradition is compared to the version I was given for literally 25 years of my life. I mean, truly was given a sliver, like a, a, a almost like when you when you barely close the door and there's a little sliver of light passing through. That's how much I was given, but I was taught this is all there is. Like, congratulations, yeah. you found this pro- pastor, this theologian, you have arrived. And I, I think that these conversations remind me of how much more there is to explore in the massive, beautiful, sometimes disturbing, of course, and sometimes ugly, but it's a house, a house of Christian thought, all the good, the bad, the ugly, all that stuff, you know? And so I really want to thank you again, Travis, for taking time and Trip, of course, for hopping on and kind of playing my wingman here because it's been very helpful. And folks, we're doing this stuff in October. This is a part of why we're doing this besides just our knowledge, but the reason why we I kind of moved this conversation up quicker than my usual backlog of like 10 episodes right now is because we're going to Theology Beer Camp in October uh, 18th. It's going to be a great time. Travis will be there. Trip is going to be there. A lot of other amazing scholars and people, I'm going to put this slide back up here, um, are going to be there. Here's just a, a little snippet of, of the folks who are showing up. All the podcasts, all of the speakers. I mean, it's going to be just a really good time, but more importantly, and uh, let me just say, um, the only way I make any money off of this is if you use my promo code, okay? I make, I make like, like 20 bucks. So my incentive is not huge. I'm not trying to boost this because I'm getting paid millions of dollars. I'm being sincere with you as much as I can be. The reason why we push this a lot is because when I went last year, I can't tell you how healing it was for me to recognize that there are people who are have been asking the questions that I've been thinking about for a long time who have just have some really beautiful and wise things to say about those conversations and it just helped really expand my own understanding of not just the Christian tradition but really the world around us and how we can interact better with it so this is really worth going it, it really is like Tripp said if you go to the website theologybeer.camp and use promo code I am elect you will get $50 off your ticket and you can show up I'm going to be there Noah our podcast producer is going to be there it's going to be a great time uh, Trip and Travis thank you again friends for making time it means the world I'm sure we'll do it again my pleasure. Had a great time. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. All right, friends, that's it for this live. Thank you for being here. Let me know your feedback on this. I would love to know because this is new for me. I do not do a ton of these like podcast live things, but this is my first one. So if you want more of these in real time, let me know. Also, I want to let you know that the reason we're able to do all this work is because we're a nonprofit organization completely sustained by the generosity of people like you. So if you want to donate, you can click on the link in the show notes here or in the little description and you can donate right now. Just so you know, we are running a 
month-long giving campaign where if you donate any amount of $5 a month or more or a one-time gift of $30, you'll get entered to win some pretty cool prizes, including co-hosting a podcast with me or our first ever TNE mystery box. So that's something new that we're trying out. You can go to the link in our show notes. Like I said, you can donate. We're a nonprofit, which means any donation made is tax deductible inside of the US. Friends, thank you for your time. Thanks for being here. We'll talk again soon. Adios, amigos. Adios, amigos.